The Life of an Astronomy Gear Junkie with Craig Levine on episode 316 of the Actual Astronomy Podcast. I'm Chris and joining me is Shane. We're amateur astronomers who love looking up at the night sky. And this podcast is for anybody else who likes going out under the stars. So before we get started here with Craig, uh, Shane, we have a Patreon supporter to thank. Yeah, we do. Uh, big thanks to Alejandro. Uh, we really appreciate it. Um, and as always, we appreciate all of our Patreon supporters. It just helps keep the podcast going. So thank you to all. Yeah, thanks so much, uh, Alejandro. We uh, enjoyed your images. We're going to read your email in the next podcast. So we'll leave it to then. For anybody who's listening, please consider making, uh, even if it's a small donation, we certainly appreciate it. It helps keep things rolling along here. Maybe think about making a dollar a month through Patreon commitment to the actual astronomy podcast. And with that, Craig, good to have you this morning. Yeah, exciting thrill to be here, guys. Thank you very much for having me. Yeah, so Craig Levine is a longtime friend of mine. We met back at the Halifax Center of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, and that's basically like an astronomy club for Canadians. We like to have long names for stuff, I guess. All right, he was president of that astronomy club. He has also served as the president of the RASC National Society. I've known Craig for a long time. He was the first person who showed me the sun through an H-alpha telescope. One of the first people let me look through Nagler's in their telescope. And he was the first person who sat me down in a proper observing chair for the first time while allowing me to look through his astrophysics refractor. And Craig, you now live in uh, Southwestern Ontario, I think, and welcome to the show. Thank you very much. Yep. Southwestern Ontario, the uh, where you get six months of the year is basically eye polishing season. Yes. Nice. Very good. So I suppose we have our mutual friend, Dave Chapman, to thank for connecting you back up to uh, us in the podcast. Yeah, and I have a long connection with Dave uh, from the RESC. In fact, I sold him my one of my first telescopes, my eight-inch uh, Discovery Dobsonian. And I, I missed that telescope. I almost regret selling it. But he's got a lot of use out of it, and he's since sold it, passed it on to somebody else, using it an awful lot now, which is fantastic. Very cool. And that would be the second Discovery mirror that you own, because you also bought one of their 13.1-inch soda line mirrors back in the day, I think. Yep. And I still have that one. Mutual friend, uh, Steve, I can't recall his last name. It's been so many years ago. He Steve T. <laughs> yes, that's right. So yeah, you know, he built a fantastic scope. I gave him Creed and Barry's book and I said, Steve, can you make this? He said, sure. And that's all he wanted really for the, uh, for building it was because for him, it was, uh, I know a great guide for some of the work he wanted to do. So I was one of his first, you know, big scopes that he built. And it's, it's a fantastic scope. It's a uh, trust Dobsonian. Love it. Now, little funny side story about Steve is Steve lived in a trailer park and I would go to his place the odd time as well. Cause he was a super handy guy, always building interesting stuff, but he actually lived in the trailer park where they filmed the trailer park boys over in Dartmouth. I didn't know that. Oh my <laughs> so he had like a dome on a roof of yeah. another trailer that he had on his property. And sometimes we'd go uh, and observe from the roof of another trailer in the trailer park where the trailer park boys were filming and do astronomy. So that was kind of cool. <laughs> and maybe just for some of our global listeners, if you're not familiar with trailer park boys, it's a bit of a Canadian cult classic TV series. Uh, I don't know how many seasons they put out, but quite a few. And it, it was a quite a, quite a good show. Yeah. I went, I went to school with Corey from the show for a number of years. So. Oh, wow. So you're at the London center, Craig. Excited yeah. about that because have you been down to Andrew's Forked River Brewing Company? No, because a few years ago, I became a very boring individual. I don't drink. I don't smoke. I gave up coffee. Uh, I do. I have no, I have no vices except gear. Um, <laughs> and, you know, with COVID, I've been a hermit for the past three and a bit years. 
I mean, I've been practice, practicing all my life for being a hermit, so I'm enjoying it. Good. <laughs> Every time I think about London, you know, I've never been to London, Ontario, which is strangely enough, because I lived in Southwest Ontario for uh, almost four years. Did you ever hear the story about E.E. E. Barnard taking the train through uh, Southwestern Ontario on his way to uh, an RASC meeting? It rings a bell, actually. And so E.E. Barnard, the famous uh, sort of amateur astronomer who grew up in poverty, uh, working at a photographic studio as an assistant and eventually came to photograph the Milky Way star clouds and understand them as the glowing clouds of dust and gas and stars that we know today. Well, Barnard was an honorary member of our society way back when. And he was coming up to Toronto for a meeting when they were passing through. He'd been sort of sleeping on the train. And when they were passing through a, a place called Paris, Ontario, the station master or the ticket collector, whoever was roaming through saying, next stop Paris, next stop Paris, he chimed up and said, oh, I'll sleep through Paris, but let me know when we get to London. And the guy turned back, looked him straight in the eye and said, no, sir, we went through London one hour ago. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to talk about some uh, gear today. Uh, maybe we'll just get started with how did you get interested in visual astronomy, Craig? Wow. So it's kind of a two-parter. So the first part is growing up in Cape Breton Island, Nova Scotia. Small village, really dark, uh, right on the coast. And my brother, uh, my older brother, was very much into science and astronomy, and he sort of pulled me along in all his adventures. I still have a scar in my hand. We were, the Northern Lights was a massive show, I think the 72, 73. And, and it's so hard. You get a scar from that, eh? Well, well, we were running through a neighbor's yard, and he had a fire barrel, and I ran <laughs> right into it, sliced man. We kept going to watch Northern Lights. So and he uh, was also into Carl Sagan's Cosmos and, of course, pulled me along with that as well, too. Got the book, watched the series. And fast forward to 1996, 97, we're buying our first house outside of Halifax, down toward Peggy's Cove, uh, halfway down. And as we're driving out every night with our car uh, to you know, fix up the house, paint some things, there was this bright comet in the north every night. And boy, did that just, that was like flipping on a switch for me. Uh, I still have an old pair of binoculars my parents gave me in late 60s. I'm not that old, but yes, I am. And uh, observing it every night, and that just got me going. Uh, that really triggered it. And that's when I started researching and made a, a lot of mistakes along the way. Uh, but that's that was how I found the RASC uh, was shortly after that. Do you do any imaging, Craig, or is it just visual? Uh, so far, it's been all visual, but that is about to change in a big way. Uh, that's, that's part of, uh, I think one of the things we're going to be talking about and some plans that I already had, but now I can accelerate, uh, to the present versus uh, seven, eight years from now. <laughs> so yes, I will be getting the visual shortly. I've been doing a lot of photography and doing, you know, uh, like, uh, not as good as Alan Dyer, but he's certainly been an inspiration for nighttime, uh, landscape photography. So I do mm. a fair bit of that. Um, now I get to marry both passions, the photography and the astronomy portion. And that's what I'm really getting juiced up about right now. Yeah. Yeah. That, that world of astrophotography has, uh, a, you know, there's a lot more involved <laughs> and a lot to learn. Oh, absolutely. I mean, I'm looking at about, you know, four or five different pieces of software I have to mm -hmm. learn and learning about what are these flats and darks and bias frames. Well, I have no idea what a half of those things are, but I'm excited to learn. I love learning new things. Yeah, yeah. No, I, uh, I'm i similar. I, I enjoy just the challenge or, or the excitement of learning something new. And I dabbled a little bit in astrophotography, but I my approach was a, a very simplistic one where 
Uh, I didn't want to do much processing. I wanted to see what I could do with a single frame, uh, you know, long-term exposure. So I really just stuck to some wide field stuff of the Milky Way in the summertime and, you know, some constellation shots here and there. But uh, so I, I don't even really consider myself an astrophotographer. I'm just somebody who played around with a camera at night a few times. <laughs> you know, but the, the, you know, astro astrophotography—it's not a single thing, right? It's it's a spectrum of things mm -hmm. and do, right? Right from just you know a single shot, uh, you know, on a, on a tripod, maybe a camera mounted uh, on a larger go-to scope that's tracking the night sky for some longer exposures, or you go a whole hog into it with your, you know, your. Uh, astro cameras there, and there's so many of them out there to choose from. Uh, you, you know, there's, there's just so many ways you can do it. And that's, that's, what's really exciting to me is there's, you know, how, how am I going to do it? What's my approach going to be? Mm -hmm. What do I have to focus on? Um, and that's exciting when there's, you have this whole, you know, pathway in front of you and with multiple branches going off it, that, that, that to me is just, I'm a kid in the candy store at this point. You talked a little bit about observing You, you told us, a. Uh, pretty funny story, but maybe not so funny, but your own personal injury observing, what was sort of uh, a favorite observing session that maybe you've had and, and what did you see during that session? Wow. So there's, there's a couple that come to mind. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll speak to the first time I got together with the Halifax center for the RESC, because this was for me, a really important one. My assumption was with the, with that long names, you say we're great for long names, the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. I expected, you know, a bunch of people in tweed jackets with the elbow patches, pipes, perhaps, and that sort of thing. Very <laughs> that's, typically, that's typically how we dress when we're recording the show. Since it's audio only, people should picture us like that. Absolutely. And my, my handlebar mustache, uh, you know, mutton chop sideburns. So, yeah, no, I know uh, I, so they, there was a, um, an open house at your observatory and I was, I was kind of, you know, should I, shouldn't I, they'll be very academic people. Well, there was a display of the Northern lights that night and some people who, you know, you'll, you'll certainly recognize their names, uh, Mary Lou Whitehorn, Dave Lane, Roy Bishop. They're all former national presidents of the RESC. They were jumping up and down hooting and hollering like, three-year-olds at Christmas and they open the gift and they find their most favorite toy. And mm. I thought I found my tribe because they were like, the passion was almost childlike. They were so willing to show me as the newbie, so many sights through the telescopes. It was just nonstop. And I was like, wow, this is, this is great. You know, one of the things that happened to me when I think it was either my first or second night out at the, and, and in Halifax center, they had the St. Croix observatory and you and I spent lots yep. of nights out there observing and I remember I, I was so excited to get out there and I, and I get out there and I don't even remember if I brought a telescope my first time and lots of folks had scopes. And I remember Paul Heath had 10 inch telescope and I was chatting with him, you know, Paul's really great guy, really outgoing and really enthused to have a brand new member of the club there. And, and he said, well, look, why don't, why don't you take the 10 inch for a spin? And I was, I was so excited. I was sweeping along the Southern horizon, like through like Scorpius or something like that. And remember there was a railing you could kind of put like yeah. your, uh, your chart or flashlight or something on, on that railing that they had built into the observatory. Yep. Well, Paul had, uh, had a really large old Tommy flashlight that he had just put a big red filter on. And as I was sweeping the 10 inch across the Southern horizon, I picked up that flashlight at the end of the tube and it went whoop and then smash right into the mirror. Oh, <laughs> so, so that's what happened to that 10 inch. Ah, now I know I, I wondered about that. Actually, well, let me, let me tell you another uh, really great observing session. Um, so I was in Cape Breton living in Halifax for a while, but took my binoculars up 
And I intended to look at a few items, a list of items I wanted to see, a list of objects. And M8182 uh, was among them, great binocular objects. So I'm looking naked eye at the sky, and it should be right in where I thought it should be. I'm thinking, I'm seeing something there. Can't be. That's wrong. Look, picked up the binoculars, put them up to the, my eyes, looked up, and there they were. It's like, took them away. So I checked and posted something. It might have been on the RASC forums. Alan Whitman replied, you know, Alan. Uh, oh, yeah. Long-time observer. Yep. He, uh, he confirmed, yeah, under exceptionally clear skies and with very stable atmosphere, you can pick them out naked eye. And, of course, on the west coast of Cape Breton Island, looking over the Gulf of St. Lawrence, there's no light pollution whatsoever. And it was a very calm night. It's like, mm-hmm. wow. So that, that was exceptional. And then the, the tour off the, uh, the Milky Way and whatnot, uh, the night sky, was just fantastic that, that, uh, that night. Cool. So do you have any favorite books or websites uh, you might be able to recommend before we hop into some of the, the gear chat, just so people don't think you're, you're only about the gear. I think you're somebody who likes to uh, read a lot about astronomy and sort of research stuff. Uh, yeah. Any recommendations for people who, who are listening? Yeah. I mean, uh, certainly, I mean, um, you know, speaking, uh, I'll start speaking as a gearhead. Uh, I put that in quotations, you know, cloudynights.com. That, that's one everybody should know, or, or if you haven't discovered it yet, check it out. It's a fantastic site. It's a global forum for any topic under the sun for astronomy, be it gear, be it observing. So it's, it's a great resource place and it's taking me down many pathways and many links to places. Now for books. Um, yeah. I've got a few of them actually sitting around me here too. You know, one of the books, when I, you know, you sometimes with any hobby, uh, you get to that point where just you don't have the energy for it for whatever reason, right? It could be life, could be, you know, just been cloudy for months. A great book is Leslie Pelche's Starlight Nights. Uh, it was written, God, I don't know, 50, 60, 70 years ago. But the pa- it's a simpler time, at least the way it's written. But the passion for astronomy that's in there, that's inspiring. And mm-hmm. I love, I, I still reread it every now and then. I still have it in my hand right here. Another one would be um, the collection of Walter Scott Houston's columns uh, for Sky Telescope, Deep Sky Wonders. Oh, Scotty yeah. has a passion. He's earth down to earth. He's unpretentious. And he's got a great eye and a great way of explaining things. And that will kind of juice up your, you know, your interest. And yeah, I got to get out and see that is interest. That's an object I want to see. Yeah. So I love him for that. You know, and actually Sue French uh, is very much taking up that mantle a fair bit. One I'll recommend, and I'm actually one I'm using right now as we talk and some, some of the observing I do and how I plan for it, is her Celestial Sampler uh, book, 60 Small Scope Tours for Starlit Nights. Oh, yeah, I have that. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a great resource. I mean, it says for small scopes, but if you have a bigger scope, well, these objects that look great in a small scope will look fantastic in your bigger scope. You'll see much more detail. Other books I'd recommend, Steve James O'Mara's uh, Deep, Sky, Deep Sky Companions books. Yeah. They're very good, with the exception of the Caldwell book. Uh, you had a guest, Alistair Ling, recently, who's talking about lists and things, and he got a little cranky around Caldwell. And I'm, I'm in agreement. That's not a, that's me, that's not a Messier, that's not an NGC. No, that's just, you know, I like his stuff. But he certainly didn't discover these objects or do anything else other than say, hey, take a look at these. But yes, Stephen J. O'Mara, J. O'Mara's books are really good for because he, he observes in a four inch telescope obviously from very very dark skies mm-hmm. but as the way he explains the objects some of his sketches it'll give you a feel for what you can expect to see and, and part of observing you know it's not just what you're seeing but having this many light years away uh it was created through a stellar explosion or whatever the history is of that object that makes it more interesting it's not just the thing in front of you 
It's knowing the backstory of it. And always, it's, it's like with people, a person is interesting. Once you get to know their backstory, like, it has a three-dimensionality to it. Well, it's the same with, with night sky objects. Very good. All right. Let's, uh, let's get down to some, some gear talk. Now, I, I think this is the part Shane's been, uh, <laughs> been eager to, to hop into. So I'll just kind of get us started a little bit. I was always excited when you pulled up to the observatory because you're always pulling out some pretty interesting stuff out of the, out of the trunk. And I remember you had one of those 30 millimeter wide scan, uh, three eyepieces. Yeah. I ended up buying that off you. Do you remember that? Do you remember? You know what? I did. I forgot about that. So you mentioned that in the email. It's like, yeah, I remember that eyepiece. There was a bit of a buzz about that one at the time too, I recall. Yeah. That one ended up, I used that all the time. I now use it mostly for outreach because it's so, uh, it just like has really old coatings now. Maybe I should return it to you and ask for my money. No, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> I, I ended up replacing it with sort of the OG, which is the uh, Masayama 32 millimeters. So I actually have have that now. Wow. But I remember when I bought that off you, I don't remember where we did the sort of exchange was um, when Carolyn Shoemaker was at uh, St. Mary's University and right. we went to the reception yeah, and yeah. I bought the money and you brought the eyepiece and Carolyn Shoemaker is watching us exchange an eyepiece like it's some sort of a deal going down there. <laughs> <laughs> Like, yeah, I forgot it was that night. You're right. Yeah, I remember her. That was yeah, that was that was, yeah, that was a fantastic talk. Yeah, but I think you've got a pretty good selection of uh, of the Nagler eye pieces. I think you have that 31 millimeter Nagler. Yeah. So I, you know, it's funny. I, I decided stupidly, if you well, well, smartly though, I decided to pare down my gear. I had too much duplication, and I decided to sell some gear and get try golf because why not? I guess that's what people do when they hit a certain age. And boy, did I hate it. Uh, I tried it for. <laughs> So I still got this bag of dusty golf clubs sitting in a basement corner somewhere. So I, I paired down, but yeah, I do have a 31 Nagler. That's that's my primary wide field uh, eyepiece. I'll, I'll I'm actually, actually I'll have a duplicate of that very shortly. Um, I've got a Panoptic 27. Uh, got a, I still love it's a big Nagler 20 millimeter uh, Type Two. Oh um, wow! Yeah, it's a beautiful eyepiece. You'll probably got football. Oh yeah, it's big. My brother gave me a, a was a Spears Waller uh, 17 millimeter uh, super wide angle series okay. too. That's kind of a neat one. But like yourself, Chris, I like Pentax. I really do. I've got a 14 millimeter XL, a 10.5 XL. I got their seven by 24, which is for me one of the best zooms I've used. Hmm. Uh, and I got a few couple of Naglers. You got the nine and seven. Uh, I got the three to six millimeter for Planetary, which is a beautiful beautiful little eyepiece if you don't have it in order to planetary planetary rather i'd recommend it it replaced some of my uo orthos i had so i sold those off i still have one left only because i couldn't sell it and i have an ap barlow uh, that i use also with a binocular viewer and that's that's another interesting little little thing i have i'm just going to ask you about a couple of your scopes and then Shane, yeah. you're probably eager to ask him about his binocular viewer but i was wondering um i remember you had that astrophysics was it a five inch astrophysics no it was a 102 millimeter 102 millimeter. Do you still have that scope? Oh yeah. My, my brother and I were just talking about it actually a few days ago. And he said, uh, I hope you're not planning on selling that. And I said, no, it'll be buried with me eventually. <laughs> no, it, it's a wonderful scope. It, it absolutely is. And we talked about the 13 inch uh, Dob. You, are, you still have that. We'll Do you have, have any other, other telescopes that you've uh, picked up since you and I last hung out? Well, n- not really. Uh, it kind of, yes, kind of no. I still have a, I have an ETX that I bought a while ago. I haven't seen a lot of use. It was, it was on, a, I got a great deal on it, so I couldn't pass it up. Um, I've used that actually for some uh, terrestrial viewing. I still have the Coronado 40 millimeter Max Scope 40, which, which is a wonderful, wonderful scope. 
Mm-hmm. Um, and plus a bunch of pairs of binoculars, uh, 20 by 80s to 10 by 7 by 42s. What else? 7 by 50s, 10 by 50s. Yeah, I have four or five pairs of them now. And another big pair coming, gigantic pair. I'm going to hand it over to Shane here. I can see him <laughs> wranging his hands, looking to uh, break into your basement at some point in the future. So, yeah. <laughs> As Chris mentioned, Craig, I am uh, kind of interested in the bino viewing aspect. Yeah. Um, it's something that I, you know, I've, I've tried three different times. Uh, the first time was with the William Optics bino viewer. It's a pretty yeah. popular kit. It comes with, I think, two 20 millimeter, 20 millimeter eyepieces and a little OCS to help um, help achieve focus in just about any telescope. Yeah. I had troubles merging the images with that set, and it may have been a collimation issue or, or maybe a me issue. But anyway, I sold those. Then a couple of years later, I thought, maybe I'll get into bino viewing if I have a better bino viewer. So I bought uh, the Binotron 27 or whatever it is from Dankmeyer. Uh, it had the power switch and all of that fun stuff. And I just didn't fall in love with it. It was super heavy and, you know, caused balance issues. So I kept that for about a year or so, and then I sold it. Um, and then a couple more years passed. And then I ended up with the, um, it's a modified, uh, Zeiss Bino viewer, the CZAS or whatever it is off of uh, cloudy nights from Dennis, uh, uh, in Europe there. Um, and I'm loving it now. I'm, I'm fully committed to bino viewing. Uh, the only time I'm really not doing it is if I need a wide field view and I have to pull out the two inch eyepieces. So mm-hmm. I'm curious about your experience and what bino viewer you're using and, and how you like it. Funny you should mention, uh, that Zeiss bino viewer because, um, I mentioned my brother before and he'll come up again in the conversation. Uh, he gifted me, uh, oh, wow. one of those pairs. So I do have one of them and I use it with my dog. I use it with my uh, AP. I love it. So Mm -hmm. when I observe, so this, and I think Chris, one of the questions, you know, you might want to ask, I think you were going to ask at one point is, you know, some, some uh, recommendations for people. One, the important thing for me, the hyper important for observing is being comfortable. And you mentioned the bino chair sitting for me is absolutely critical because if you're standing hunched over, your back gets sore, your knees get sore you've lost the narrative. You're, you're not going to be able to focus on what's in front of you. You're going to be focused on your body pain. So I, I go, you have to be ultra comfortable for observing. Mm-hmm. And for me, I usually single eyed, um, uh, you know, I'll, I'll use uh, either an eye patch, which is, can be okay, but it has to be one of those that kind of bubbles out. It can't be touching my eyelid. I hate that. That's yeah. cracking. Or I'll do it with both eyes open, which you just have to focus on your dominant eye and try to ignore your, your mm-hmm. other eye. Mm-hmm. For me, bono viewing, even though you may lose a uh, half stop to a stop of light because it's splitting the, the, the light beam, you're, for me, it's, I'm seeing more because I'm comfortable. I'm using both eyes. And it almost brings a little bit of a three-dimensionality to the view because you are looking at it with two eyes and it's just a, you know, a, a psychological thing. But for me, it's a much more comfortable way to observe. I've, I have no problem merging and, you know, even some of those optical illusions where you have to, you know, cross one eye, uncross one eye kind of, or whatever yeah. you do. I can do all that with ease. That's not an issue for me. I can make my eyes rotate independently, which freaks people out. So, <laughs> so it's, you try it, to get them on the exorcist, but. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah, there's some puns in there. I'll leave that alone. But no, but for me, I love the Bonnie viewing, and that Bonnie viewer is phenomenal. Yeah, it is. Um, it is. You know, the Zeiss glass. And I have a couple of Zeiss uh, eyepieces. I think they're probably from um, what do you call it? Uh, microscopes. Mm-hmm. 
they're fantastic. Um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't want to be without it. And like yourself, I use a, I use a, uh, it's an astrophysics, uh, one of their um, Barlow's. You take a lens assembly. That's what I use, plug into the, into the Bonnie viewer to achieve focus with my, with my telescopes. Right on. Yeah. The, uh, the Zeiss Bino viewer, well, most Bino viewers just use prisms, uh, and the Zeiss Bino viewer, uh, uses mirrors. So there's less chromatic aberration with it. It's a pretty light set and, uh, you know, all of the fittings are just well-machined. It it really is a nice piece of gear. And, and I definitely concur on that comfort factor. Um, one of the things that used to end my observing sessions early was my back. So I got the chair many years ago, problem solved. Um, but then the other thing that started to kind of annoy me by the end of an observing session was trying to keep one eye closed and just the fatigue that that would sort of cause. Um, so with the binocular viewer, that's all gone. Certainly there is some light loss, but there's, I believe that there's a, an increase in contrast, uh, using two eyes, which makes up for some of that light loss. And maybe one of the biggest surprises for me in binocular viewing, um, is, is the, perception of field of view when i'm doing mono viewing with say a plossal or a 50 degree field of view it it definitely feels tight when i'm bino viewing with two plossals it feels so immersive i i don't feel constricted anymore like like i would mono viewing it's it's such a different experience and it you know using two eyes also seems to increase the scale like the image scale a little bit and i again i i don't know if it's just the brain playing tricks or <laughs> or some sort of optical illusion but um i i i really really enjoy it the the only downside is now you need two of your favorite eyepieces and you know that can get a little expensive plus you got to haul that out to the telescope but you know i think it's a small price to pay no, I'll agree with that a hundred percent. You know, like you say, with comfort is everything. A proper observing chair—that's mm-hmm. really important. You got to be comfortable there. Uh, the eyes, absolutely, and also warmth, because the moment mm-hmm. your extremities, your feet, your hands, yeah. your head, ears—the uh, moment they start to get uncomfortable and get cold, your observing session is done. So, mm-hmm. you know, a good uh, piece of advice for for anybody getting into the hobby is always dress for at least ten degrees colder than the than it actually is. Mm-hmm. Um, so if it's zero, I'll dress for minus 10, you know, if it's 20 degrees out Celsius, I'll dress for 10 degrees. Um, because I know with the, you know, one, the moment I start to focus on my discomfort, then I'm, I'm missing out on detail because I'm distracted. Right. Yeah. Be really focused on what you're doing. Yeah. Yeah. That is a, a great point. And, and until you really go observing, especially, you know, on a cooler night, I think it's hard to really understand how that cold penetrates and gets into your bones and, and just ruins an observing session. So, you know, I love that suggestion of uh, dressing for 10, you know, at least 10 degrees cooler than what the advertised temperature is. Well, and Chris will understand too. He lived here for a bit. Uh, we got the Great Lakes around us. It's not a, it's not, it's just a regular cold. It's a damp cold. You can have as many layers as you want. It'll creep right, right through what you're wearing, right to your bones. And that's, that's the, one of the downsides here is that dampness that's always pervasive in the summertime is the high humidity as well. Yeah. Out here it's uh, it's much drier and a little bit colder. So yeah. where, where it's not a damp cold here, it will freeze dry you. Yeah. It's a cold, cold, not just a damn cold. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That's right. Um, what are some of your favorite pairs to use with the Bino viewer? Well, so um, that's coming up. So right now I've got a, um, like I say, the Zeiss ones that came with it. And that for me is I'm, I'm content using just those because it's, mm-hmm. you know, it works out roughly uh, with, with the magnification of the Barlow, somewhere around 12 or 14 millimeters. So that, that's actually a good, 
for me, that's an ideal. And one of my favorite eyepieces I've had at least three times, don't have it anymore, was that Mead ultrawide 14 millimeter. Mm-hmm. Now, I had the original version and two versions off the off the middle one. There's a third version now, but the the middle one was, I think, they're one of their best. 14 millimeter to me is a sweet spot, so I like that. Now, I do have a couple other pairs of bino viewers that will be arriving sometime uh, in the in the next couple of months, and there's one, two, three, there's at least a dozen pairs of eyepieces I'll, I'll be able to choose from. <laughs> wow. Cool. Yeah. So there's also, um, with that, there's one eyepiece, I'll forget the name of it. Uh, my brother was telling me about it. What it does, it's, it's, it's this oddball thing. It, it, it actually gives you, one of them is tunable, as I understand it. And it actually gives you a 3D mm. illusion, not just the 3D of having two eyes, but there's something with the eyepiece that actually gives you an enhanced 3D illusion. Sounds a little gimmicky to me, but I'm interested just to see what that looks like. I think for Outbreak, yeah. that could be a real fun thing. Like, yeah, th- those are Dinkmeyer eyepieces, I think, right? Are. The the yes. LOAs. Um, that is exactly it. Yeah, I so they also make or used to make uh, yeah. binoculars with you know similar effect. And uh, I had those briefly. Uh, maybe a year or two actually. And, um, they were interesting for sure. Like they definitely created depth and, and you needed an object in the field. And, uh, if it was too wide of a field, at least with the binoculars, uh, it sort of got outside of this 3d zone and, and it wasn't quite as neat, but if you had a, like a globular or a planetary nebula, um, it was pretty cool. Yeah. I'm a globular fan. That's, that's one of my primary, uh, things I will seek out, however faint they might be or however bright. Uh, so I'm interested for that. The other thing that's kind of interesting and I'm really looking forward to, oh, bit of thunder, uh, that I'm interested in is the, there's a pair of, uh, 24 millimeter panoptics. Mm-hmm. That's a lovely lens. That is mm-hmm. a, you know, one of those lenses I think I had once and regretted selling many years ago. So I'm glad that's going to actually going to be coming back into the kit because they're that that's a, uh, definitely a sweet spot eyepiece. Yeah, yeah, they're wonderful in the bino viewer for sure. Yeah, yeah, they're great. Right on. Uh, do you ever use uh, uh, like higher powered eyepieces, or do you stick kind of around that ten to twelve millimeter focal length and don't go beyond? Well, those are my sweet spot, and it depends on the seeing. Right, if the seeing is good, then I'll start bumping things up. Um, I did have, you know, over the years, several Barlows, the Teleview, um, every one of the ones Teleview had. I think at some point. Um, but I prefer now, you know, uh, you know, it's the same with with photography. I prefer, you know. Um, Zoom lenses are great and have their place. I have a couple that I like to use, but I prefer to use, you know, single focus ones. Uh, so I do have the um, Teleview three millimeter to six millimeter. That is, you know, and it's if you've used the orthoscopic eyepieces, you know, uh, mm-hmm. University Optics had them. They were, you know, one of the brand names years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, they're, they're nice volcano tops, which are really nice, but they had almost no eye relief whatsoever. Yeah. Uh, they had zero negative eye relief, um, but the Teleview three to six, the little mushroom cap one, that mm-hmm. is a beautiful eyepiece for for planetary for deep sky. It's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, it has uh, great. The eye relief isn't terrible. Um, it's I think it's parfocal as well too, which makes things a lot easier. Uh, there may be a second one arriving, so I may even try those just for giggles in the bino viewer. But the magnification <laughs> will be way too high because you have to use the. Uh, yeah barrel piece in there. So if I want to use you no know, three to one and a half millimeter, uh, that's not usable, but no, uh, I do. I will use that three to six, uh, if, especially on planetary, um, lunar, and even some, some deep sky objects, planetary nebulas, as an example, uh, I will use that for that. 
Craig, you mentioned uh, you've got a little bit of gear coming there. And by a little bit, I mean quite a bit. Um, you talked about some of the eye pieces. Yeah. You mentioned in our email that it sounds like there's several scopes coming too. Do you want to tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So, so, and just as a bit of the backstory too, uh, I have an older brother, as I mentioned, uh, he's a medical professional in the States. Uh, he's very, got a very demanding career. Uh, he loves it. Uh, he plans to work a very long time. Kids are all grown up, but he's found, he's like me in a sense. Uh, he's got this, this collector gene. He likes to collect things. I think, you know, uh, for, I think a lot of us, Shane will probably agree. Uh, sometimes, uh, the chase, uh, is also part of the enjoyment of the hobby. And my brother did like to chase down those really cool things and kind of rarish type pieces. So he's a collector, but he's realized he doesn't have time for all this. And he knows that I'm, you know, I've gotten back into it in a very uh, large way again. Now that life has opened things up for me, less stress, more time, all that sort of thing. So he's decided he's given me everything that he has. That also includes a, a, a large collection of astronomy books, atlases, you name it. So there's a lot to go. I haven't cataloged it all yet. It'll be it was supposed to arrive this week. Uh, we had to postpone uh, to probably June. So we're working up logistics. So some of the scopes, let's talk about that. There's uh, the smallest ones, the Coronado PST, which would be a complement to my Max Scope 40. He did have a calcium uh, scope, but he sold that a while ago, which is too bad. But a PST, which is a slightly different wavelength than the Max Scope 40. So it's kind of cool having them both side by side. I'm looking forward to that. The next one I'm really interested in, and there's a few of them I'm interested in, to be honest, is there's an APM ED152 millimeter double uh, Whoa. <laughs> yeah, that's on my list uh, to, to consider at some point, maybe. Well, uh, if you want to try it out, come to Ontario. Uh, <laughs> okay. <laughs> it'll be here. So that, that, I'm very interested in that one. Even though it's a doublet, uh, you know, a triplet is ideal. Like the, the AP is a triplet for astrophotography uh, because a triplet will bring, you know, red, green, blue wavelengths light to a focus. A doublet, you may have one of those uh, wavelengths slightly outside the focus of the other two. And that's where you get some of that fringing. It's, and that's not a bad thing. It's not terrible. And sometimes it's not even noticeable. The APM is well corrected. And I've seen some images from it. And you're hard pressed to see any fringing. So it's it's a nice doublet and it's light. That was one of the key things I like about it. And the size too. The next one uh, that I'm really keen on, and this is going to be the core. So here's a piece of advice for people uh, getting into the astrophotography. And I've read this all over cloudy nights and other places. Um, if you're getting into astrophotography, you really shouldn't start with a Schmidt Cassegrain. And that's what I'm going to do because I'll have to <laughs> as well. So there's going to be a full Celestron. It's the nine and a quarter CPC, a Celestron CPC Deluxe. Oh, wow. With that, with that is the Starazona Hyperstar, which will bring it down to like an F2 from an F10. Uh, there's also uh, an Attic Horizon camera is going to be part of that. And I've already bought the, the do ring for it, and I'll be getting the wedge uh, very shortly as well. So that, and plus it has a cooler for it. Uh, you take out the, the secondary, you drop this thing in, and it actually blows, but you take out the, mm -hmm. open up the back, it actually blows cool air or, or ambient air through it and cools it down quicker. So that'll be part of the, the package. So I'll be using that. That's what I'm going to start with. Now, first, I have to learn to use the, use the scope. Mm -hmm. I learn the mount, learn the Schmidt Cassegrain. There's also a couple, there is this manufacturer, you may remember them from years ago, uh, Van Slyke Instruments. Does that ring a bell? Oh, yeah, with the focusers. Bingo. Well, there's two Van Slyke focusers as part of this. Oh, those things are like $1,000 or more. You could drive a tank over these things and the <laughs> tank would be injured. Uh, they're over-engineered, but there was, uh, I guess there was a major forest fire uh, where the guy had a shop. 
no insurance and it burns and that was it that was the end of the business uh that was done but he has two of those so that that's that's also part of it um i know why i was going somewhere with it. oh yeah so i now all of a sudden I'll, and I'll probably get the focal reducer that's on my list of things to get as well too for the rear so i'll have the scope it'll really be like three or four scopes in one that i'll be able to do a lot with and they also it also has the feather uh touch focuser uh upgrade mm-hmm. as well so that's nice the next scope, uh, so that's, that's going to be my, that's going to be my primary observing or uh, some observing and, and learning astrophotography rig. Actually, I'll likely have my Dobbs set up at the same time, or even a refractor. So while I'm capturing light with the camera, I'll still be observing. So I'm still a visual observer at heart, and always will be. The next one is a 12-inch Mead uh, LX200 F10 Schmidt Casting. Uh, currently that's mounted, uh, that'll be part of the package is a disc mount and that'll handle over 50 pounds. So he's got actually a, a dual saddle where you can put the LX 12 inch LX 200 and the APM refractor side by side. Uh, yeah. That must be the, the DM six. I'm assuming it is. It is the DM six. Wow. That's incredible. I'm looking forward to that. And that's mounted on a, a Lozmandy GM 200, uh, tripod which is nice beefy one. Uh, yeah, it is. Yeah. So um, I, I have some ideas for that one uh, as well too, with that, that mount as well. There's, there's other bits and pieces to go with that. There's a, uh, the power switch start diagonal, so you can put in the filters and, and when switch between them, that, that'll be kind of handy for visual. I'm excited about that. Um, so there's that scope. And there's another one I have an option on. Vacillating, I'm waffling and... I shouldn't do it, and I'll slap myself silly if I don't. There's JMI NGT 18. Oh. 240 pounds of 18-inch go-to. Tracking wonder, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it needs a little bit of work, but that, that's okay. Uh, there's, you know, it's no, now when JMI sold, this scope and was not part of that package, so it's no longer made. However, there is such a community online for it, and a lot of what I found through Cloudy Nights with all even all the descriptions of every single part so if you need a machine or replacement part it's all available you can, mm-hmm. you can keep maintaining this thing so i gotta figure you know a buddy of mine um from the area see actually from he was my neighbor in halifax and he's moved from saskatchewan uh now he's here in uh, not too far from me in oil springs um anyway he's uh he said well you take the uh, put a hinge on your fence make it a gate and you buy a trailer and you park it in that trailer it's like hey, now we're starting to get in, get, getting a little spendy here um, <laughs> so that is an option i have um and if i do have a garage i could put it in my car can get hit with hail and rain and snow for all i care so i'm, I'm kind of tempted so I'm, I'm baiting we were talking about it actually yesterday and i'm still thinking how can you not how can you say no to that yeah, that's a, I've never heard of this telescope before, but it looks very unique. The uh, the like base, a horseshoe. Yeah. It's a, like an old timey horseshoe mount, but made out of steel. Hmm. Absolutely, uh, and if you run your car into it, you know you can write off your car, and you'll still be observing that night. Nice. Uh, <laughs> it's it's built like a tank. There's yeah. no question. So so those are the scopes I have. So now getting into the gear thing. So with the if you get the 12 inch Schmidt Castigrain, that's really, you know, a, an imaging scope at the end of the day. It's great for observing, you know, at F10, it's going to be, you know, kind of a narrow field of view, but it it's great. But I think for observe for it's, it's great for imaging and really designed for that. That's what I'm thinking because that's what I do. Um, and I'm thinking I may have to sell, though I will have some duplicates. So I think I'll be able to, to finance this. So what I'm thinking of doing, I'm just going to flip into my, some notes here. So, yeah, I was looking at getting, so here was the plan. 
eventually, um, you know, as I slowly age, uh, you know, the uh, retirement will be coming up probably within a decade or less. I'd like to get a permanent observatory set up somewhere. Where I'm at right now, I'm in a small village west of London. It's building up, unfortunately, so there's a lot more light pollution. So this, I don't think this will be our permanent place when we retire. Uh, maybe Cape Breton, maybe up in Georgian Bay, something like that, and where the skies are darker. So I'd like to get a good mount, uh, you know, a um, something that's that's designed for astrophotography, have to carry a good weight load, etc. So I was looking at the Avalon Instruments uh, Linear or Linear L I N E A R HQ. Beautiful, beautiful mount. A friend of mine actually has one. Friend Ryan mm-hmm. Fraser, not too far from here. He's got an observatory. He does some wonderful astrophotography. It's nice thing is it's, it's Italian made. It's bright red, so it has that you know Ferrari red look. But it's also belt driven. So with that, you don't have to you know like I, I had years ago a um, made from Senta. It was an Orion mount. Uh, I think Skyview Pro. That came with the, we jokingly called them the Senta glue, which was their grease. You had to open it up, <laughs> degrease it, regrease it, all that sort of stuff. And I had a couple of spare parts left. So it never worked as fine afterwards, but it was still a good amount. Uh, this, this eliminates that, uh, apparently. It's belt driven, so there's no maintenance to be done. That, that interests me. But it's, 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 it's a spendy one. It's not as expensive as, you know, a, an astrophysics uh, Mach 2 GTO or a Paramount MYT or, you know, even a, uh, I was looking at the, uh, the 10 micron GM 1000. I mean, th- th- those are Canadian $15,000, $17,000 uh, mounts. So that's just out of the question. Mm-hmm. But the Avalon is getting within range. But I'm thinking for, because I don't have a permanent place to put it, a mount yet like that. I'm certainly looking at some of the ones, um, you know, there, there's so many uh, really good mounts out there right now. But um, one that's kind of caught my eye is one of those new harmonic mounts, these harmonic equatorial, equatorial mounts, the, like the AM5 from um, ZWO. That will still carry about 40 odd pounds. Probably too, not beefy enough for the LX200, but for my refractors, that'd be yeah. an awesome mount. It's portable. It tracks well. I've seen some great imager, imagery from it. That's got my eye. Mm-hmm. So I may look at that one as a near-term purchase and then long-term look at something like the Avalon uh, as an option. You could you could look at something like uh, a Rowan AZ-100 as well. That could be interesting. Mm-hmm. See, here, here's another thing as well, too. So it, it, with the years doing the RESC stuff and working a working full-time job, I kind of got away from you know being obsessive about gear. I had a good kit. Paired it down, and I was happy with that kit. Um, so all of a sudden, I'm back and really back into looking at. There's so many, so many new vendors. Like for refractors, there's so many new manufacturers out there. It's insane. Mounts, light years of what it was just even a decade ago. So I've been Rip Van Winkle. I woke up 100 years later and said, wow, <laughs> what's going on here? Like what's everything changed? Everything I knew is just I'm an old, I'm an old, you know, I'm a guy from uh, the 1940s talking like a, the Mid Atlantic. I say, what is all this gear you kids have here? <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, it, it's phenomenal. So it's now I'm like a kid in a t- candy shop again. But, you know, with that, with that working uh, and doing the, the RESC stuff, you know, Shane, you mentioned something, uh, I think it was three or four episodes ago that, um, you know, when you're out observing, you know, life's busy and, you know, you're trying to figure out what to do. And you're talking with Alistair Ling, uh, I believe it was. Yeah, it was with Alistair. And, you know, it's like, yeah, you know what, I'll just throw something out on the, the deck and I'll, you start to look at familiar objects. I got an hour. Yeah, I'll look at those familiar messiers and this couple other things and take it all back in the house. And I got into that, into that, into that rut, if you want to call it that. You know, at least I was doing some observing, but I really wasn't focused. I wasn't mm-hmm. 
here's my list of things. And I'm going to spend, you know, three hours observing this one object to collect those photons. I'm back into that mode. So now it's like, I'm thinking, well, you know, if I get a big mount, that's going to be something heavy. I'm going to have to lug out. And uh, you know what? Maybe I, just, I, wouldn't, I probably wouldn't end up lugging it. Get something nice and light that I can use as portable. Mm-hmm. And I'll get a lot of use out of. And then once I get a permanent place to build an observatory and a permanent peered mount, that's when you go for the, because uh, then it's not a chore. I just go out, roll off the roof or open the dome, ready to observe. Yeah. Yeah. That's for sure. The ideal state. Right, Chris? <laughs> yeah. I'm, I'm living that reality. <laughs> I have to go check on my snow drift today. <laughs> yeah. I bought a place uh, about a year and a half ago and uh, it's about, it's not the darkest place, but it's what I like to call the reasonably dark sky. I don't know if you're familiar with like the uh, top gear series and they have the, the reasonably good racetrack or whatever they call it. And I always like to think this is, this is like that. It's like a magnitude 6.3 location, like, like a pretty decent place yeah. within an hour's drive of the city. Nice. That you can't beat that. that that's perfect. And it's your own place too. Even better. Yeah. Yeah. So just slowly working towards maybe getting a roll off built, uh, fingers crossed that, that, that happens. So kind of ramping, ramping up to that a little bit. So are you familiar with by EE? No, I'm not. And my <laughs> wife would probably recommend that you not tell me about it. <laughs> Shane, do you want to too, give too that? late, Craig? Too do you late. Give... <laughs> I know Astro by cell. I'm familiar with that. Uh, so, so by EE um, is a kind of a third party middle company that um, gives us in North America easier access to Japanese auction sites, particularly uh, a Yahoo auction site. Um, that's very popular or seemingly very popular in Japan. There's a ton of astronomy gear that is posted there every day. Um, and what by EE does is they do the translation for the auction. So you're able to, you know, uh, clearly understand, uh, what is for sale and the condition. If you have questions, they'll proxy your question and translate it and, and be that interface. And then probably the biggest value is if you win in, uh, you know, any of the items, the local person in Japan ships that item to buy EE, who then ships it to you. It works quite well and it opens up a whole new catalog of possibility because there's some very interesting and at times some very rare gear. Uh, I have a, a pair of uh, 18 millimeter TMB super monos and each one of those uh, was acquired on that site. Um, yeah. It just seems like there's a lot more stuff that comes and goes through, uh, through that channel. Wow. Uh, yeah. You know what? I, now that I know about it, I definitely would look at it. <laughs> yeah, because that could be dangerous. Oh yeah, you've been warned. Uh, it it becomes an obsession. <laughs> well, you know, so, so but here's the cool thing. Like that, that, I mentioned some of the gear that that is coming. There, there's a lot more. There's you know, 36 eyepieces. Uh, there's a set of Zeiss color and interference filters, about 35, 36 filters. I have no idea if I'll ever even use these things. So, I've, so I'm gonna have to take an assessment of everything and figure figure things out. There's a pair of uh, what are these 20 by 110. Uh, millimeter uh, binoculars and whatnot and, and other bits and pieces and doodads and things. So I, I think I'll have enough to, to learn and keep me occupied for a while. I mean, uh, this is such a um, windfall uh, for a gearhead, an astronomy gearhead. And it's like, it's like with photography, you know, you pick the right lens for the right, uh, you know, situation. Well, now I'm in the situation of being able to pick the right scope and the right high piece for whatever I'm looking at. So that's, you know, 
I got to figure out what to do with all that. Some of it, most of it I'll keep. Some of it, I think I'll sell to finance uh, a couple other things like the mountain I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. And hopefully it'll open up some more opportunities for me to do more outreach. I kind of got away from that for a while. Life uh, kept me busy and, you know, I'm too tired to do this or, you know, the, too much going on to do that. So I may, I may use some of this for some of that as well, too. A lot of, a lot of things to, to ponder and think about and figure out and where do I store it? That's the next thing. <laughs> Sounds, uh, sounds exciting. Uh, you know, especially for, uh, you know, somebody who enjoys gear, that'll be, uh, Christmas is coming this summer for you, I guess. <laughs> yeah. And, and I should say too, gear, gear is a means to an end. I certainly like yourself, yeah. love the learning, but there's always a purpose and a point, uh, to this. And that's, that's part of my evaluation process of how I'll use it. Will I use it? Uh, can someone else get better use out of it? All those sort of things, right? Mm-hmm. It's, so it's, there is the, it is a means to an end. And, but it's yeah. certainly a fun part of it. I mean, that is part of the journey is, is getting to understand the nuances, the ins and outs and the capabilities uh, of some things. Yeah. And, and, you know, for me, um, one of the reasons why I have churned through some gear in my days is, uh, you know, you referenced it earlier, Craig, from a previous podcast, my time is measured under a dark sky. You know, I, I don't get out nearly as much as I would like to. And when I do get out, I want it to be the best session possible. Yeah. And if that means a different eyepiece or a different telescope to, you know, really maximize that session, then that's what I'm going to strive for, you know, and, and it is such a, it's such a subjective hobby, you know, it, it really, what works for you may not work for me or what you love may not be what Chris loves. And, you know, you really just have to try this stuff out to see what works for you. 110%. Uh, I mean, it's very, I agree. It's a very personal uh, hobby, right? It's it, like, like, like anything, your enjoyment of music. Some people listen to music to, they really want to hear what the bass player is doing, or, yeah. you know, they want to hear what the sax person is doing or the guitar. And same with astronomy. Uh, there's, you know, I have a passion for uh, globular clusters and some galaxies and whatnot, but I certainly love everything out there. But those are the things that always draw my eye, the bright and shiny things that twinkle. But now I'm also thinking, you know, I don't really have a wide field refractor. I have some, you know, a lot of F8, F10, my, my, certainly my telescope, the, the reflector is an F4.5, but I'm seeing all these small refractors from so many new manufacturers out there now. It's like, that could be interesting as well, too. And I could, you know, probably repurpose one as a guide scope, right? So a dual purpose. So I'm thinking along those lines as well, too. Maybe just before we uh, conclude, Craig, you mentioned briefly, you, you're really busy up until recent times and your passion is now reignited. Can you tell us about your passion getting reignited and maybe what you're aiming to observe at this time? Yep, absolutely. So yeah, so um, recently uh, changed roles within the same company, worked for a great company, been there for well over a decade now. So between that and, uh, you know, once I stepped aside as, as uh, president of the RESC and got off the board, you know, I figured I should step aside, let somebody else put their fingerprints and their imprint on the organizations on us. I, I stepped I away. You're from- dusting for fingerprints now. I should. Uh, yeah. <laughs> anyway, moving on. No, the, uh, <laughs> but no. Um, so I decided to say, you know, I just, I just need to take a break from that. And now, so what I decided late last year, early this year, it's like, you know what, I got time now. I'm sleeping much better. I'm, you know, I have more free time. Yeah. I started to get, yeah, I want to get back into this. So I started going and getting out more, doing it more. And around that same time, of course, my brother said, Craig, I'm getting out of the hobby and I'd really like to give you this stuff. Okay. So that, that helped a bit, quite a bit. And now I'm, you know, of course, uh, obsessively reading forums and the nuances of a piece of gear. Uh, there's that, but then also, um, 
Dave Chapman, uh, a mutual friend, posted uh, something on his Facebook page. Yes, some of us old folks still use Facebook. And um, I replied to him, and, and he mentioned something about, uh, and then, then I saw your po- his post about the podcast. I didn't know you guys had a podcast. Uh, you know, so, okay, check out the podcast. This is really good. I was like, and so I started listening to it at work. Um, you know, while I was doing administrative stuff at work, I'd throw the podcast on, or I'm driving somewhere, throw the podcast. I'm really enjoying going through all the back back um, uh, editions. And when Alistair was on, and one of the, so I should say, one of the things I had planning on, was planning on doing, I had in my mind, okay, I got to get focused and I got to get my list going of things I want to observe. When Alistair was on, you guys started talking about lists. And that resonated with me. So I re-listened to that again. I said, yeah, I got to do this. So I, you know, I got a big printer here and whatnot and some binders. Uh, when we moved our offices, they had a bunch of surplus. So I got some great stuff to, to print all this stuff on. So I printed off the, I'm going to, I figured here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to start off with the Messiers and the finest NGC objects. So each night, those will be my primary. I'll pick two, one or two or three primary objects from those lists. But then using Sue French's book, as I mentioned earlier, uh, what are the secondary things that are nearby? And then with that, I also just recently bought, um, past month, the Interstellarum Deep Sky Atlas. Never heard of oh, it. That's excellent. Oh, ho, ho, ho. I've got about 10 atlases. I love atlas. I'm, listen, I'm, a, I'm in the IT biz like yourself, Chris. Um, I'm into technology in a large way, but you know what? Observing, give me paper or give me death. No, paper is is the is the thing i love a good paper atlas i can flip the page on and just the batteries don't die and it doesn't ruin my night vision so i'm into out this is is an amazing atlas i will actually it was uh, alan dyer he spoke to the london RASC center and one of the things he mentioned was this and i went never heard of it went online looked at it went wow yeah it's amazing so mm-hmm. you know so I got my binders and i will be sketching at the eyepiece as well so i haven't done that in a long time and i reread my old logs from the halifax days and i really had gotten away from logging my my observing session i used to have a dictation little hand dic- dictation machine record my observations go back and then sketch the eyepiece and fit, touch them up later well, i want to get back into sketching uh, doing my messages i've done them before but I never in a formal way i'm doing that now same with the ngcs it's kind of warm-up exercises and then it's going to i'll be looking into the her into the herschel 400 uh following that so each night i'll be picking away that's basically my thing. The Intercellarum, uh, Sue French's book, and those big lists. And I'm be going to town for the next couple of years on those, and then expanding up from there. Nice. We uh, we did an episode. Episode twelve was on star atlases or atlases or however you say. Atlai. Atlai. Awesome. Oh well, this this has been a lot of fun. I feel like uh, I feel like this hour just kind of disappeared in us somehow, but. Uh, Craig, do you have any other further thoughts? Maybe we can catch up once the gear actually uh, is in your hands. How does that sound? That sounds great. Uh, tentatively, we're looking now for uh, sometime mid to late June uh, for the first delivery. So absolutely, anytime. Always uh, thrilled to be talking to you guys. Yeah, I was I was looking to catch up as well. Just uh, you know, and I thought it'd be nice just to touch base here. Now I know like you were president for a while, and you know we met up briefly at the Calgary General Assembly there, yeah. and you look so burnt out by. That. you don't don't know the half of it but yeah i agree so then i thought you know we'll catch up one day we'll catch up one day and then uh i was thinking oh we should do that when dave kind of reconnected us i thought let's just do an episode and you were hoping to get the gear but that's fine it was great to catch up and when you get the gear we can uh we can do another one oh absolutely anytime just reach out all right shane do you have any other further uh thoughts or anything with the show 
Uh, just thanks, Craig. Really enjoyed the talk. Really nice meeting you. Look forward to the next discussion. It was a pleasure, guys. Thanks so much for inviting me. Thanks, Craig. And thanks, listeners. Uh, dear listeners, please do us a favor and share the show with the other stargazers you know on social media. Email your friends or put a forum post up on your club forum or whatever you guys use. We'd appreciate it as the more we grow, the better the show will be. Thanks for listening. And you can always reach us at actualastronomy at gmail.com. Thank you, everyone, for listening, and we hope you enjoyed the show. If you are interested in more information, would like to contact us, or if you would like to support the podcast, check out our website, actualastronomy.com. <laughs>